reached our cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts, and look at Heartland News from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today as we dive into the stories most impactful to you. Folks, let's begin today's show. The Phantom of CRT. In April of 2021, Cecilia Lewis had just returned to Maryland from a house hunting trip in Georgia when she received the first red flag about her new job. The trip itself had gone well. Lewis and her husband had settled on a rental home in Woodstock, a small city with a charming downtown and a regular presence on best places to live lists. It was a short drive to her soon-to-be office at the Cherokee County School District and less than a half hour to her husband's new corporate assignment. While the North Georgia County was new to the couple, the Atlanta area was not. They'd visited several times in recent years to see their son who had attended Georgia Tech. Lewis, a middle school principal, initially applied for a position that would bring her closer to the classroom as a coach for teachers. But district leaders were so impressed by her interview, they encouraged her to apply instead to a new opening they'd created. Their first administer focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. DEI-focused positions were becoming more common in districts across the country. Following the 2020 protests over the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Arbery. The purpose of such jobs typically is to provide a more direct path for addressing disparities stemming from race, economics, disabilities, and other factors. At first, the scope of the role gave Lewis pause. In her current district, these responsibilities were split among several people, and she'd never held a position dedicated to anything as specific as that before. But she'd served on the district equity leadership team in her Maryland county and felt prepared for this new challenge. She believed the job would allow her to, as she put it, analyze the district's systemic and instructional practices in order to better support the whole child. Lewis was beginning to prepare for her move south, spending as much time with friends and family as possible when she got a strange call from an official in her new school district. The person on the line, Lewis won't say who, asked her if she'd ever heard of CRT. Lewis responded, yes, culturally responsive teaching. She was thinking of the philosophy that connects a child's cultural background to what they learn in school. For Lewis, who'd studied Japanese and Russian in college and more recently traveled to Ghana with a Fulbright-Hayes Seminar abroad program for teachers, language and culture were essential to understanding anyone's experience. At that point, she wasn't even familiar with the other CRT, critical race theory, which maintains that racial bias is embedded in America's laws and institutions and has caused disproportionate harm to people of color. In a speech the previous fall, then-President Donald Trump had condemned CRT as toxic propaganda and ideological poison. The caller then told Lewis that a group of people in a wealthy neighborhood in the northern part of the county were upset at what they believed were her intentions to bring CRT to Cherokee County. But don't worry, the district official said. We just want to keep you updated. Lewis was confused, but remained optimistic. She read up on critical race theory and determined it had nothing to do with her role. The following month, inside a gabled white clubhouse overlooking the hills of a Cherokee County golf course, Dozens of parents from across the county had assembled on a Sunday afternoon for a lesson in an emerging form of warfare. School board meetings would be their battlefield, and their enemy was critical race theory. One of several presenters at the meeting was Rhonda Thomas, a frequent guest on conservative podcasts and the founder of the Atlanta-based Truth in Education, a national nonprofit that aims to educate parents and teachers about, quote, radical ideologies being taught in their schools. So what is critical race theory, Thomas asked the crowd. Well, it teaches kids that whites are inherently racist and oppressive 
perhaps unconsciously, and that all whites are responsible for all historical actions and should feel guilty, she lied. Thomas stressed that parents should form their own nonprofit groups and cut ties with their school's parent-teacher associations, saying that PTAs support everything we're against. Another presenter, a local paralegal named Noel Kahanian, leads the nonprofit Protect Student Health Georgia, which aims to educate on harmful indoctrination, including comprehensive sexual education and gender ideology. Kahanian emphasized how to grab attention during upcoming school board meetings. Identify the best speakers in the group, she told them, adding that it's okay to be emotional. Be sure to capture video of them addressing the board, or even consider hiring a professional videographer. Kahanian says, it's good in case Tucker Carlson wants to put you on the air. It really helps. The clubhouse meeting, a recording of which was provided by a parent who attended, provides a window into the ways in which conservative groups quickly and efficiently train communities to take on school districts in the name of concepts that aren't even being taught in the classrooms. Two days after the meeting at the clubhouse, Cherokee County's school communications chief and its school board members received the first of approximately 100 form letters that would flood their inboxes over a 48-hour period, demanding that Lewis be fired. Soon after Lewis received yet another call, someone from the district leadership asked her if she was planning to watch the board meeting that night. She replied that it hadn't really been on her radar. You should watch it, they said. Well before the Cherokee County School Board meetings started at 7 p.m. that night, people hoping to get inside were being turned away. The first order of business was introduced by Mike Chapman, a Republican board member who'd held his seat for more than two decades. It was a resolution against teaching CRT, and what came next caught Lewis off guard. Hightower, the superintendent, read from a statement. While I had initially entertained and publicly spoken to the development of a diversity, equity, and inclusivity plan, I recognize that our intentions have become widely misunderstood in the community, and it created division. To that end, I have concluded that there will be no separate DEI plan. To Lewis, it was as if the foundations of everything she had been asked to do had just shifted, and she was no longer part of the conversation. A subsequent speaker, a parent named Lori Rainey, was rewarded with applause when she asked the board, My question to you is, if you vote to do away with the DEI program, does that mean the new DEI officer has her offer rescinded? Because why would we need to pay $115,000 for someone who doesn't have a job to do anymore? At that moment, Lewis recalled her husband said, That's it. We're not doing this. You are not going there. He left the bedroom in disgust. In a phone call the next morning, Hightower apologized to Lewis. He said he still wanted her to come to Cherokee. Another administrator asked if she would consider a different position, but by then, she'd made up her mind. She told Hightower it's just not going to work. I can't say I blame her, Cherokee County School District Chief of Staff Mike McGowan said in an interview. There was so much misinformation about who she was, what she stood for, and what was going on politically. Folks, the article that I pulled this story from is one of incredible length, and if I were to read it all, we wouldn't have time for any other stories. I feel it's a must-read, though. Look for it on ProPublica under the title, White Parents Rallied to Chase a Black Educator Out of Town. Then they followed her to the next one. It highlights Dr. Lewis's challenges well beyond what little I've shared here. It goes further in-depth into the grooming the right is performing right now on parents and districts all around the United States to fear something that is concurrently not a real threat and also 
not even present in their schools. This is dangerous. In the article, we see fake accounts created on social media for Dr. Lewis, parents claiming to know where she was in their town, even when she hadn't even left her old residence in Maryland yet, banging on windows at the school board meeting when someone spoke in favor of her, and more examples of frightening behavior. Many of us know that this is all in an effort to undermine public schools, but it costs this woman more than one job. And honestly, it seems lucky that that's all she lost. The fervor being whipped up over this non-existent issue angers me and frightens me. I can only hope that we eventually see reasonable heads win the day on this one. Agape still a stain in Stockton. The Agape Boarding School for Boys in Stockton, Missouri, that's facing 19 lawsuits from students alleging torture, starvation, and sexual, emotional, and physical abuse has found its way back in the headlines again. Mother Nicole Fernandez, who is among the plaintiffs launching legal action, revealed that her 14-year-old son contracted pink eye from a revolting exercise that involved students rolling around in animal shit. Before turning to Agape, Fernandez was desperate to save her then 14-year-old son, who was spiraling out of control after the sudden death of his father, so she enrolled him in the school, in hopes he would benefit from animal therapy and emotional support. The widow was desperate to save her son with special needs before he ended up in jail or dead, with the recommendation of a broker, who actually turned out to be a recruiter from Agape, she decided to enroll her fragile teen into the all-boys school in February of 2019. It looked like the perfect school, with lots of nature and animals to help students emotionally. I was told that they worked with lots of kids like my son, and they were well-equipped to handle those with special needs. My son was on the spectrum and had been diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome, Asperger's syndrome, anxiety disorder, and of course was grieving the loss of his father. But after just four months at the school, Fernandez said, Corey had lost so much weight that when she saw him for the first time during a visit, she couldn't believe her eyes. My son was standing in front of me, and I didn't recognize him. He looked emancipated. His head was shaved, he was wearing an oversized dirty orange sweater, and used rain boots that were about size 13 when he was size 8 or 9. He went in weighing about 185 pounds, and when I saw him, he dropped nearly 50 pounds. He looked like a prisoner. It broke my heart. I should have taken him out immediately, but the school was so convincing and kept drilling into my head that this was what was best for him, when in fact it ended up being the worst mistake of my life. It was only after Fernandez took her son out of Agape in October of 2019 that she came to realize the actual torment and abuse her son endured for nearly eight months. I remember him telling me like it was normal, how he and other kids had been dragged out of bed at night in the Ozark winter and forced to roll around in camel muck. He said, well, that's where I got pink eye. He was told it builds character. As a form of punishment, kids were fed special food, a soggy tortilla on a wet cookie tray with a smeared moldy refried beans, for example, and they had to eat two of them. If they threw up, they still had to eat it, and if they didn't, that's what they had to eat for dinner that night. They were really abusing these kids. It wasn't until after reading a story on the controversial school that Fernandez found support in the form of another student who was interviewed for the article. I reached out to Robert Buckland, and from there he basically took me under his wing, showing me how and where I could get help, hence the lawsuit. One thing I want to make extra clear is that Agape knew my son was special needs going into the program, and they absolutely abused him. Also, they knew that we were still freshly grieving the loss of my husband, and they did not support him whatsoever. If anything, they took advantage of our vulnerabilities. Agape Boarding School describes itself as an affordable nonprofit Christian boarding school designed to show God's love to teen boys who are struggling with behavior issues that could threaten their future. Josh Bradney, another student, was just 12 years old when he was sent away to Agape Boarding Schools in 2014 for two years. 
Now, age 20, the former student is also seeking justice and filed a lawsuit against the school and church last year claiming he had been raped on a regular basis. Agape is what threatens a student's future, Bradney says. It's a cult that tries brainwashing kids into believing that they are terrible people who are going to hell, that their parents didn't want them, that they deserve the abuse. I was the youngest student there, and for that reason, I was constantly targeted, along with anyone else who was vulnerable, disabled, or who had special needs. They would pick on us nonstop. These kids with special needs were denied their medication, so they had even more challenging time just trying to survive. Fernandez agrees, saying that the school went against the American Disabilities Act by not providing her special needs son with appropriate care. Bradney describes one incident where he was allegedly beaten up so badly by a group of students that he was taken to the doctor. He claimed he was instructed by a staff member to lie and say he was injured at football practice, even though he did not play the sport. On top of that, his doctor at the time, Dr. David Schmack, is now behind bars being charged with 15 sex crimes and attempting to sodomize a 13-year-old in a shower. During his visit, Bradney claimed Dr. Schmack touched him inappropriately and was creepy. I, it wasn't safe anywhere. I couldn't tell any of the staff members or the doctor what really happened to me, including the sexual abuse, or I would get into even deeper trouble. I was happy and relieved when I heard about his arrest. Bradney is determined to see the school shut down before any other kids are hurt. You can't leave these kids behind and get abused. Fernandez adds, I want to see them all held accountable. I want to see them prosecuted and see the school shut down. After leaving Agape, the mother had to place her son into a real therapy program, Sunset Bay Academy in Mexico, for another 15 months as a result of his experience at the school. He was happy healthy, loved, fed, and we were able to go out on the town and even had overnight visits together. They never denied me time with my son at his real program, and they never denied me access to the facility to see how the children were loved and treated. Meanwhile, Robert Buckland is actively trying to get the school shut down and won't be slowing down anytime soon. When he's not working at the hospital as a caretaker and studying to get his nursing degree, the 28-year-old who attended Agape from 2007 to 2013 is helping other former students and their parents and calling out city and state officials who have turned a blind eye to the ongoing abuse allegation. Buckland recently tweeted a newly released video footage of Agape pastor Frank Burton dragging and kicking a young student on a field in 1999. The governor of Missouri, Mike Parson, has seen the video of the student being kicked and dragged on campus, and his response has been, well, you guessed it, no comment. Buckland shared a photo taken in 2016 of then-Senator Parson posing with Agape staff members and students. The disturbing video has now reached nearly 34,000 views, yet Burton is still at Agape and is on the board of directors. Buckland received the same response from the Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who said his hands were tied and has told reporters his office has no comment. Buckland says, We now have five additional lawsuits, making a total of 19. Video footage of a pastor kicking a student and hundreds and hundreds of victims' testimonies. What else do they need? bodies to start dropping folks before we hit the break i want to inform you that we're taking a brief layover with candidate josh becker josh is running for election in the st charles county missouri council to represent district five josh and i have personally bumped into each other more than once in and around st charles county at meet and greets and canvassing events josh i want to welcome you to the flyover view how are you doing today 
I'm doing great. Thank you for taking the time to, to speak with me today. Yeah, absolutely. I figured we could just dive right in with the questions, let people get to know you a little bit. So running for office is never easy. I want to know what made Josh Becker decide he needed to put himself out there and run for District 5. Great question. I got into this race because one, I love my county. You know, I wanted to help make a difference here in St. Charles County. And two, there's just too much nonsense going on right now that I feel needs to be addressed. Uh, I don't think our current council members in the district and our other council members, to be exact, are actually focused on on, on their districts. Uh, I want the voters of St. Charles County to know that the council is there to work on county level issues and county level concerns. So the council is supposed to be non-political and not motivated by politics, but sadly, this is not where the council has become lately. The council should be focused on topics like parks, infrastructure, working with our first responders, and actually being an advocate and voice for the people of St. Charles County. And that was also another reason why I jumped into this race, because I want to ensure that I am that advocate for those people of St. Charles County. And what about your background makes you qualified to represent St. Charles County? What are you bringing to the table? I've been a resident of St. Charles County my entire life. I remember when St. Peter's was like the main hub of St. Charles County. And I remember when Highway K was only three lanes. (laughs) I grew up in the county. I know the county. And I've always had the same questions and worries that all residents have. When I'm elected, I will bring common sense leadership to the table. And what I mean by this is that I will ensure that order is in place, that our residents have their questions answered. And then, of course, that there's transparency about what is going on with the county. I want to be their voice of reason. Yeah. And uh, as someone who lives on Highway K right now, um, I sometimes wish it was still a smaller area. Right. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, actually, you've kind of touched on this a little bit. I I heard you mention something about wanting to be someone who gives a voice to the people. Uh, And on your website, it says that everyone in the county has a voice and everyone's voice deserves to be heard. What does that mean to you when you say those words? So exactly what it says on my website. If someone in the county has a concern about something, uh, a question about a bill that is being introduced or passed, um, come to the meetings and inform the council. You know, the taxpayers of St. Charles County need to know and should be able to speak up if they have any type of concerns about what's going on in the county. Um, As the next District 5 council member, uh, I will listen to those concerns that are brought forth and I will promise to work side by side with the other council members to ensure that we come, come up with a good solution. Yeah, and I also noticed on your website that you mentioned the average age of the people on the council does not meet uh, sort of the median age even of the area. And, and you're definitely, you're a younger guy. Like uh, you might be able to speak to that for some folks. Absolutely. Like I said, you know, I think the average council member has been on the, the council for about 14 years. So wow. over time, it, it, it's about time for change and for new leadership and new faces to start representing St. Charles County. Lots of folks may not be able to look at like every issue when they're voting for someone. So for you, what is the one major issue that you want to tackle if elected? Sure. So since the council focuses heavily on county level issues and concerns, the one major issue that I want to focus on and tackle when I get elected is bringing public transportation to St. Charles County. It is time to bring public transportation to the residents of St. Charles County, reaching all the way from West Alton to Forestell to St. Paul to Augusta and all the counties in between. St. Charles County expands roughly like 593 square miles, and we have over 405,000 residents. So we need to ensure that there's transportation for our most vulnerable population, our elderly population, and of course, for those residents who have their own transportation, but they want to save money on gas, or they just want to take the bus to the park, the store, or even the doctor. Uh, My full proposal on my public transportation can be viewed on my blog, which is on my website. Okay. Well, and speaking of that, how else can folks find out about you, find out ways to help you? 
Sure. So my website is joshbecker4scc5.com. And that is the, uh, the words for F-O-R, not the number four. Uh, for Twitter and Facebook, it is jbecker4, F-O-R, S-C-C-5. And then, of course, I can always be reached by phone, 636-544-3908. Or shoot me an email, joshbeckerscc5 at gmail.com. Great. And before we head out, uh, are there any upcoming events that you want to highlight? Currently, I don't have any scheduled, but be on the lookout on the events page on my website for anything that might be scheduled in the future. I also do post them on my social accounts as well. Yeah. And I know that speaking from experience, you're popping up everywhere too. So I imagine if folks head to any kind of political event in the area, that there's a good chance they'll run into you. Absolutely. All right, Josh, thanks a lot for taking the time to join me today. Uh, best of luck out there. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Hey there, folks. I hope you're enjoying the show. I want to remind you that we are 100% listener-supported family of podcasts, all under the umbrella of the Heartland Pod. You can catch our flagship show, The Heartland Pod, on Mondays every week with Adam Summer, where he delivers an opening statement before being joined by Sean Diller and Rachel Parker for a talking politics session on the week that was and diving into elections, legislation, and public policy. You can also join Adam on most Tuesdays and Thursdays for Let's Have a Chat, featuring interviews with folks of interest from around the Midwest. On any given week, he could be chatting up a politician, a farmer, a scientists, you name it. On Wednesdays, the focus shifts to a rotating cast of special reports like The Delta with Nicholas and Christina Linke and High Country, Sean Diller's Western political updates. Learn more at heartlandpod.com. And don't forget, for full access to the last call episodes and the Heartland News blog, sign up on Patreon as a pod head today. And now, the lightning round. Lightning round. Black drivers more likely to be stopped in Missouri. Recently released data shows black drivers are more likely to be pulled over in Missouri compared to white drivers, and the gap between how Missouri police treat black and white drivers only increased again last year. Differences in black and white motorist interaction with police have for the most part only increased in the two decades since Missouri began tracking and analyzing vehicle stops, as compiled by the Missouri Attorney General's office. The response to it has not been impressive at all says Missouri NAACP President Nimrod Chappell. How is it that we look at the same constitutional violations clearly occurring based on color and there's not even a plan to do anything about it? Missouri's population is close to 11% black, but about 18% of all police traffic stops in 2021 involved black drivers. Prefab hemp homes hit the states. Europe's leading prefab hemp building company, which has built more than 65 specialty low-carbon homes, will stake a claim in the United States market with a large-scale hemp processing facility and headquarters in south-central Indiana. Dunn Agro Hemp Group, Incorporated will seek to replicate the sustainable, vertically integrated 28-year hemp operation in Odpikela, Holland, which grows, harvests, and processes industrial hemp for fiber applications and seed. Don Agro's prefab homes are made of hempcrete panels and hemp grown around their Dutch facility. Along with custom hempcrete construction panels, Don Agro processes hemp into raw materials used in car parts, textiles, and animal bedding. The new Don Agro factory will be modeled on the Dutch low-energy facility that gets most of its power through solar energy. Dunn says that the new factory would provide economic opportunity to farmers and create jobs. Lead in the water 
In 2014, Missouri regulators had given the green light for Trenton, Missouri to start adding monochloramine to its drinking water to disinfect it without harmful byproducts of chlorine. But in 2017, the city noticed something alarming. Lead levels in drinking water in the northwest town had spiked. It seems the monochloramine had corroded old lead pipes and caused a surge of lead in the drinking water. Not every American with a lead service line is continuously drinking high levels of lead. Utilities use treatments like orthophosphate that keep water from corroding the lead pipes and drawing out the toxic metal. But changes in the water chemistry, like that in Trenton, or construction that shakes up a lead pipe, can suddenly cause a problem. The Biden administration has prioritized removing remaining lead service lines. Missouri is expected to receive $250 million over the next five years for lead service line replacement. Kansas will get $164 million, Nebraska will receive $142 million, and Iowa will get $225 million. The first step, though, will be finding all the lines out there. SCOTUS awards religious private schools with public dollars. The Supreme Court ruled Tuesday that Maine can't exclude religious schools from a program that offers tuition aid for private education, a decision that could ease religious organizations' access to taxpayer money. The decision is the latest in a line of rulings from the Supreme Court that have favored religion-based discrimination claims. The court is separately weighing in on a case of a football coach who says he has a First Amendment right to pray at midfield immediately after games. The court's three liberal justices dissented to the decision, saying that this court continues to dismantle the wall of separation between church and state that the framers fought to build. Justice Stephen Breyer noted in a separate dissent that Maine wishes to provide children within the state with a secular public education. This wish embodies in significant part the constitutional need to avoid spending public money to support what is essentially the teaching and practice of religion. Gun safety bill passes key test. The gun bill in Congress is going to become law. The regulations, authored by Senators John Cornyn and Chris Murphy, passed a key test vote Wednesday night in the Senate. Fourteen Senate Republicans voted to begin debate on the 80-page measure, hammered out during two weeks of bipartisan negotiations. Joining Cornyn in voting to move forward with the debate on the bill were the GOP Senators Roy Blunt, Richard Burr, Shelley Moore Capito, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Joni Ernst, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, Tom Tillis, and Todd Young. A 15th Senate Republican, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, missed the vote but announced his support for the measure. Of note for Missourians, Josh Hawley, the junior senator of Missouri, is vehemently against the bill. And lastly, folks, Texas GOP sets the tone. Texas Republicans ended a three-day convention last Saturday with votes on a swath of proposed changes in their platform that would pull the party further right. Leading off with some treason, Texas Republicans approved a resolution declaring that President Biden was not legitimately elected. And in addition, the new party platform includes declaring homosexuality an abnormal lifestyle choice, repealing the 16th Amendment that created the federal income tax, mandating that Texas students learn about the humanity of a preborn child, in part by forcing students to listen to ultrasounds of gestating fetuses. Attendees also voted on a measure urging lawmakers to enact legislation to abolish abortion by immediately securing the right to life and equal protection of the laws to all preborn children from the moment of fertilization. The platform also calls for the abolishment of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It also opposes efforts to classify carbon dioxide as a pollutant. And to top it off, there was even renewed discussion on the fantasy of Texas seceding from the Union. Keep in mind, folks, that this revised platform is likely just a preview 
of some of the GOP's messaging going into the November midterms and the 2024 election. Well, that's all the time we have this week, folks. I want to thank you for joining us. And if you have a story you feel I should look into and possibly highlight on the show, please tweet me throughout the week at Kev in Midmo or the pod's parent account at the Heartland Pod. This week's episode featured reporting and information from the Daily Mail, KSDK, the Missouri Independent, ProPublica, Hemp Build Magazine, Axio, and ABC. Thanks for listening. The Flyer Review is a production of MidMap Media, LLC. Learn more at www.heartlandpod.com or at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. See y'all next week.